Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January 28, 2015. This is episode 1507 of the Survival Podcast. And today I kind of have a hybrid. It's a listener feedback show because we didn't have a Monday show. It's a listener feedback show because, frankly, they're a little bit easier to do than a standalone topic which is what I would often be doing on a Wednesday, um, or an interview, because, well, I don't have one, and I've been away. I've been with Mark Shepard in Arkansas uh, for a client on a consult, and we uh, looked at a property that we were initially told was about 500 acres, uh, but that was 500 acres that had been farmed in some way at some time. The entire property is actually closer to 1,400 acres, and uh, it's, it's a pretty impressive layout. And uh, we really looked deeply into two areas uh, for development, for initial development for the client. I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but let me just say it was awesome. But that's why I've been gone. Uh, it was Perma Ethos business, but Perma Ethos business is survival podcast business in many ways. And uh, so we're going to have some really cool stuff to show you out of that, some really cool educational outreach opportunities, uh, and some really cool work with a company that you know you don't normally think of as being leaders in the way of permaculture. And more will come on that in a bit. But for now, uh, just know since that all happened, I have some stuff to tell you guys, that, 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 some updates. So it'll be kind of like a little uh, mini variety show and then a, bu- a list, bunch of listener feedback to you from your emails. Remember, if you want to send me an email for a feedback show, and they usually are on Mondays, but you can send the email at any time. Send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and make sure you put TSPC, is almost like it's a word, in one block by itself in the subject line and anything else you want in the subject line after that that'll make sure that I find it uh, and then if you're going to send me a video or an article kind of make your point in a sentence or two and give me any details you want after that if you have a question state your question in one or two sentences and then give me your details it'll just work better I promise you and it'll be more likely to get through my screening the screening process is based on time it's not based on the fact that I don't care about all your details it's uh, if I tried to read everybody's email that I get if I spent two minutes on an email a day I wouldn't have enough hours in a single day to read all the emails so I have to be able to scan them very very quickly um Thanks to my gift for reading, uh, almost like it's a picture, I do read most of your emails, but it's that format that allows me to do that. So anyway, before I get to your emails and, and give you some updates on some really cool stuff going on, uh, let's go ahead and take care of uh, our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultants. The op, op, blah, blah, blah. Guys, I don't know, when I go away, do an event or something, anything like that, I usually get a little tongue-tied for a day or two. Let's try that again. First up today, Fortress Defense Consultants, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his uh, very cool cadre of instructors will help you complete that triangle of gun operator efficiency, as I call it. And what I mean by that is in the world of firearms, you have the weapon and the ammo. Those two things are critical. You don't have them, either one. You're not a weapons operator because what you have is an overpriced club. But they're commodities. We buy them off the shelf. We can buy ammo. We can buy a gun. We know how they're going to perform. We can buy the performance. With training, you can pay for learning the performance, but you're the final moving part. And that's why it's important not only to take good training, but to take good training often. 
It's some of the most important, it's one of the most important things we can do for ourselves as armed citizens is to take really good high quality training. You can learn more at fortressdefense.com and Fortress Defense Consultants has an incredible reputation with the TSP community. Uh, every time I hear from somebody that's gone, all I hear are really great things. Check them out today, fortressdefense.com. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click buy on their website. I mean everything, practical to tactical, guns to gardens, everything in between. Long-term storage food, food uh, long stuff to make your own long-term storage food, mylar, O2 absorbers, desiccants, all of that stuff you'll find there. 12-volt products to work right in with those solar and wind projects, stuff for solar and wind. Firearms, if you have a, uh, someone you can have them shipped to, you know, uh, a... Um, an FFL dealer that you could have stuff shipped to locally or, or what have you. Or if you're uh, local to them, of course, you can go and uh, purchase from them locally. They've got it all. Check them out today. ReadyMadeResources.com, the company that does what it says and says what it does. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1507. Why? Well, it's the episode. So every episode, if you're new to the show... We take the episode number, we look at the year that was the episode, and we see if we can get some context on the modern world. These are all at tspwiki.com. Again, tspwiki.com. Uh, and this segment is put together by Alex Shrugged. Today I have for you Terra Nova, Terra America, and the Aztecs and the end of the world, and living over a bridge and the gas tax. I'm going to read Terra Nova, Terra America. Uh, but if you want to read the other ones, which are both very cool, just go to tspwiki.com. Cartography or map making is still terra incognito, uh, unknown territory. People need maps, but there is no committee to set up naming standards. Martin Walsingmuller and Matthias Ringman are German cartographers who have produced the first global map that includes the many discoveries of Columbus. Martin is a great admirer of Amerigo Vespucci, the explorer, so he labels the new world as America. A thousand copies of the map go out before Martin regrets his decision. He tries to change the name to Vespucci, or simply Terra Nova, meaning new territory, but it's too late. Map makers are already using the name America as the standard. The name has stuck, uh, just like the name Indian. At this time, people understand that the people living in the New World are not from India, but the name continues to be used no matter what informed people may say. It's too late for change. My take by Alex Shrugged. If we could go back, we would use the most accurate names possible, but in the end, people will decide which names make sense to them. A good example is the name ISIS, which is the name applied to that group invading Iraq and Syria and threatening other countries, but I've heard other names applied to that group, some of them unrepeatable. ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, or simply IS, or IS. ISIS sounds pagan and therefore carries a warning to Christians and Jews, even though Muslims aren't pagans. Other names that the government might use are probably more accurate to various degrees or more politically correct, but I think ISIS is the name that people will use in the end. Uh, my take is, well, because we're brainwashed, and I don't know, I always thought it was interesting that they're called ISIS in this cartoon show called Archer, the pseudo-government-ish organization that the secret agent um, Archer worked for was also called ISIS. But I have a different look at this. So recently I've been hearing from people that can't believe that I would dare to use aluminum for anything because it's going to kill us all and give us Alzheimer's and everything else. And here's the reality with that. You're, you're going to get more aluminum from eating an antacid. 
Uh, from one dose of an antacid, you probably will from a lifetime of cooking in an aluminum pot. The hype around, how oh, dangerous aluminum is, is nothing but hype. It's misinformation, and it's been corrected multiple times. But yet there are people who will hold their breath and swear to God that it must be dangerous because I've always believed it. And they won't look at the information available that explains why it's not quite the case. They don't care. They just want to believe what they've always believed, and they want it to be the way that it always has been in their head. And they are terrified of things like a beer can. Um, you decide what you want to believe about aluminum, but it's a perfect example of people clinging to a belief simply because they've chosen it. And that happens with words, it happens with beliefs, it happens with many things. If we're truly to be people that learn new things every day, we can't cling to what we believe. No matter how much it sounds like it makes sense, we have to question it. And if we don't question it, and we just assume that it's true... More than likely, sooner or later, we'll end up being wrong. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Uh, with that, I want to remind you guys, you can help support the show and the work I do. Uh, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members of the Members Brigade banner, and you can sign up there. It's $50 a year or 5 bucks a month. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. Most of the sponsors, not all, but most of the sponsors of the show give you discounts. But I have discounts lined up left and right for you guys. Individual discounts that, that, that put more than the, uh, the cost of the entire year membership right back in your pocket. Uh, I have a lot of comp content that's available nowhere else but there uh, that you can get if you uh, go to the survivalpodcast.com and join the Members Brigade. Uh, I did hear from somebody today that said, hey, I joined like a year ago, and I never got my login information, and it was a person that joined by mail. And uh, it turned out that when uh, Dorothy did the, the entry, she messed up his email address. If you join the MSB and you're not able to log in like right away, please don't wait a year to tell me. Let me fix it for you, you know. Um, I was able to fix it for this individual, and he was actually somebody that joined in a lifetime membership, so there's really not much I can do there other than fix it. But if you have a problem and you don't hear back in 48 hours from me, tell me again. Just saying. Because uh, uh, customer service is very important to me, and I want to make sure I'm always taking care of the people that make my work possible. And again, to all of you who are members, who have uh, done any business with myself or any of my sponsors, or even those of you who, who just didn't financially, you're not in that place right now, and you just listen to the show and share it with others, thank you. Everything we have, everything we've done is because of you guys, and I appreciate you. I should say it more than I do, uh, but I try to say it often anyway. Um, next up today... I want to get into the main topic, except I have something I have to make up, which is the plan of the week from Bob Wells. Every week we learn about a plant. We also do a prepper scenario. We're going to skip the prepper scenario this week, but not the plan of the week, because uh, I think a lot of you really love the plan of the week, learning about all these different plants we can grow in our own backyard that will help feed us. Uh, there's nothing more sustainable and more liberating and more liberty-oriented, honestly, than growing your own food. Today we're going to talk about the red gold nectarine from Bob Wells Nursery. The red gold nectarine is highly adaptable from zones 5 to 9. That means most of us in this country can grow it. It's a yellow freestone nectarine. Freestone means that when you eat it, the, 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 the flesh comes easily off the stone, for those who may not know that. produces a large fruit, beautiful blush red skin covering its firm, juicy flesh. Although the red gold nectarine is a small tree with a mature height of 12 to 14 feet, it puts on quite a show through the seasons. As with all nectarines, it is self-pollinating. It doesn't need a pollinator. 
Uh, it will thrive in full sun, and you'll be amazed by the abundant harvest in midsummer. Perfect for rate, eating right off the tree and a top choice for desserts. They're also great for canning and freezing. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. BobWells Nursery specializes in anything edible. Fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Anyway, with that, I, I do want to say that like this is a perfect example of a really beautiful tree. Like It has great leaf color, it has great shape, it has great form, and it feeds you. And being a tree uh, that even a larger rootstock generally tops out at 12 to 14 feet, in the suburbs, this is what we would call a properly sized tree. We've all been to suburban neighborhoods where there's like one giant monstrous tree in a little tiny post of strip front yard, uh, and, and it, it just doesn't really scale right in these small yards. And especially if you want to grow more than one tree, you need trees that are a little bit smaller and can be done into a, a multi-tree formation. This is a great tree for landscaping. This is a tree that those of you that live with old blue hairs in, in the HOAs uh, and the pain in the ass people driving around looking for violations of your HOA agreement, you put trees like this in your front yard and you're probably not going to have any problem unless you live in like a Nazi Germany-style HOA. Anyway, with that, uh, next thing I want to talk to you today about is... Something very cool that, that we're going to do for those of you who are taking the plant propagation course uh, put together by Nick Ferguson. So this course, uh, if you haven't heard about it yet, teaches you uh, in video how to propagate plants uh, at a very high level. Uh, intermittent misting systems, grafting, seed collecting, uh, everything you need to know to set up a, anything from a backyard's nursery to a very you know significant nursery. And uh, Nick worked on this for a long time. Those of you who have been viewing it already have said the production value is amazing, and it is. Um, he's done a great job with it. It's very thorough. It gives you, again, all the information you need. You can learn more. It's available at permaethos.com. There will be a link in the show notes if you want to sign up for and take the course today. Again, those of you who pre-registered, make sure you use your discount code that was sent to you in an email. If you didn't get it, email me, jack at survivalpodcast.com. TSPC in the subject line, I say, dude, I registered, I didn't get my discount code. If you didn't pre-register, don't try to trick me, I'll know, I really will. Um, but it's a great course, and it's a great value, and we delivered exactly what we said we would, but our job is to constantly try to over-deliver. So Nick Ferguson is going to come here sometime in February, probably the third weekend, I'm thinking, because the second weekend is... Valentine's Day, and that won't go over well for either of us. But that'll give most of the people that are taking the course, you know, right away, a chance to get through the whole thing. And what we're going to do is two days in a row, a Saturday and a Sunday, two two-hour teleconferences, online teleconferences, where we are going to take your questions about the course. Nick primarily will be on the call to answer your questions about anything from the course material and anything plant propagation. And I will be there primarily to answer any of your questions about the business of running a nursery or the operations side of running a nursery. Anything from, you know, some basic concepts of what becomes tax deductible to how to market your product. That's four total hours with the two of us that anybody that's a student will be able to attend. We will video it and audio record it and both audio only versions and an edited video version of the, the teleconference will be made available to all students. If you take the course the day after, you'll still get access to the audio and video of it, but you won't be able to sit in on it. I don't know if we'll do more than that for this course, if we'll do it again sometime, like in the summer or something, but we're at least going to do that. So that's four additional hours, live Q&A, teleconference, video, audio recorded being added to that course. Just want to let you guys know that uh, if you've been thinking about taking the course or if you've already signed up and, and started taking the course, 
consider that and write down your questions. And instead of just Q&A response videos, we're going to be doing this in a very engaged manner. Um, next, I want to tell you guys about my trip to Arkansas with Mark Shepard. It was awesome. It was so freaking awesome working with Mark Shepard. And this was a consult. So we were there as additional consultants and basically project managers, Nick Ferguson and I, with Mark's team from RAD. And uh, so there was none of this, like, let me show you how to do this type stuff. There's not any type of uh, course with Mark. Uh, but let me just say, working with him for two days in the field, I learned so much so fast from working with Mark. He truly is a master at what he does. I understand key line design so much better than I ever did in theory by doing some design work in practice. And I, I clearly get the advantages over straight contour design. I know some of you are like, whatever. Let me just say, Mark's awesome. And if you get a chance to take a course with him, please do. I'm waiting for the rad guys. They're going to be doing a course prior to Permaculture Voices out in California, right near the same venue. I'm going to get some information on that for you guys this week. But Mark is the man. And the project we're working on is going to be phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal with straight production and educational outreach and research. Um, really, we, I think we, we, we found an opportunity to do something monumentous with sustainable agriculture, restoration agriculture, things like that, and it can lead to a lot more. That's all I can say for now. Next up, I want to tell you I've got a new cool video series out for you guys. It's called Dun 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 The Duck Chronicles. Um, I had to drive home last night and make sure I was here last night so I could get in bed and go to sleep and wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning when the phone rang from the post office people to go get the new ducks. 50 new ducks have arrived. They are in their brooder now, and you can see them, and you can partake in the entire journey of raising these 50, actually 51. They sent me a bonus duck. 51 uh, white hybrid layer, 300 layer uh, ducks from Metzer Farms. They're here now. They're out there peeping their brains out, and they're pooping their brains out, and drinking water and eating food already. And I took two short uh, videos today on my iPhone, and uh, you, you you can see when I pick them up, I'll show you a little bit in the box and talk a little bit about picking ducks up from the post office and how that all works. And then I bring them home, and it, the next one, is this episode two, is called Into the Brooder with You. And that's not you, you, that's you the duck. Into the Brooder you go, ducks. So they go in the brooder, and I show you how the brooder set up and how quickly they figure out what to do. These, these ducks have never eaten before, and you see me put the feeder in, and they, uh, the A team starts eating right away, and then we have like the slower team, the B team, because there's two brooders, and uh, they took a little longer to figure out, hey, it's food, let's eat it. But everybody's happy now. I have a new way that I'm doing heating in the brooder, very inexpensive, and does the same thing that like $80 to $200 uh, brooder heaters do, the exact same thing. Very, very easy, very simple stuff you can buy from Amazon. Seven bucks for one part, seven bucks for the other part. Screw the two together and hang it up over there, and it won't burn your hands, and it won't start a fire, and, it, and it's it's not a bright light, so they all go to sleep. And how do you do it? Watch, watch into the brooder with you, and you'll learn how to do that. I've set up a playlist for it called Dun 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 The Duck Chronicles, and I'll be putting out videos every day. They will be unedited, unenhanced. I phone videos, because that's the only way I'm going to be able to do it and make sure it happens. And I have a cool thing I'm going to start doing. I should have done this when they got here, because now they've eaten already and what have you. But I'm going to, I have this little very accurate scale, mainly for weighing food. 
and uh, I can rate in grams, ounces, etc. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put like 10 of them in a box and zero it with the box and put them in there and get a weight of 10 ducks every day. And uh, maybe do 10 and then put 10 from the other brooder. So it won't be super scientific, but it'll be an aggregate average of how big each little baby duck is. And over time, we'll see their growth rate, which I think will be cool. Uh, very, very interesting. And I won't be banding them and individually tracking. It's not for that. It's just to give you an idea of how fast these little guys grow. So I'll get a reading today. I'll let you know tomorrow. And we can watch them daily. And I, I won't put that on video, me weighing them. I'll just do it. And, and have the number, so each day when I do a video of the Duck Chronicles, I'll say, today the average duck weighs X number of grams. And they've, you know, they weighed this much yesterday. And I think it'll be kind of cool to watch these guys come up and uh, eventually get introduced to the flock. So you'll see the whole process and little, you know, two, three minute videos mostly, uh, of brooding them, taking care of them. I'm sure we'll have a loss or two. You'll see the failures, the successes, the new techniques we're using. When they go outside for the first time, the fact that they're coming back in and not staying outside, you know, when they're big enough to have their first nights, if the weather's right, to be outside all night long, how they get introduced, and, you know, the, the final episode of the Duck Chronicles will be the day that they are introduced to the flock and everybody's getting along and the whole world is copacetic and happy and we have 50 new ducks into you know, getting close anyway to production mode to start laying for us. Uh, so I just thought that would be a cool thing to do and take no real extra time for me because I have to do all this stuff anyway. And as long as I don't have to edit it or anything, I can do that for you. Now, next up, here's what I got for you. This is the Jack Variety Show today, right? So this has nothing to do with sustainability. This has nothing to do with liberty. This has nothing to do with politics. This has nothing to do with homesteading or farmsteading. This has nothing to do with what we talk about ever. And some of you are going to be like, this is really cool. And some of you are going to be like, the, the, the concept is cool, but I don't care about your piece of the concept. And some of you are going to be like, this is awesome. So if you, like me, are a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I'm going to tell you, you want to join Steeler Nation. It was this little thing that popped up on my Facebook feed, and I joined back in December and I hadn't really paid attention to it, and they've got all kinds of social media crap and stuff that I, I'm not going to try to earn a bunch of badges or anything, but I didn't really understand like all the perks that come with it. So I'm not in the market to buy any Steelers gear right now, but if I want to buy a jacket or something like that, there's an offer in the place you log in right now, 25 bucks off. Well, it's 25 bucks I wouldn't have to spend if I was buying a Steelers mug or something, so that's I think that's cool. Um, so like right around Christmas time, the phone rings. It's got a 412 area code, which I know is Pittsburgh, but... I usually don't answer the phone if I don't recognize the number. I let it go to voicemail. But some told me to answer it, so I answered the phone. And it's Ben Roethlisberger. Not personally. It was pre-recorded. This gets better in a minute. But anyway, so Ben Roethlisberger does this, like, thank you for being a fan, Merry Christmas, wish you a great holiday thing. And they send it out to everybody in Steeler Nation. You, know, you just get, in, you know, it's like getting a call from Ben. Well, that's cool and all, but yeah, whatever. I mean, it was neat, but I didn't exactly, you know, have a, a, a high five parade with other Steelers fans or anything. It was just kind of a nice thing, like get a Christmas card from a, a corporate entity. So then, to, yesterday, I got this phone call from the same number, and it was a recording, and it said there's going to be a conference call with Heinz Ward sometime today or next day or whatever. I, you know. Uh, but anyway, for those of you that are Steelers fans, you know who Heinz Ward is. This is a guy that will one day be in a Hall of Fame and a former player and just an awesome, awesome player uh, from some of the really great years of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's going to be doing a live conference call. Let's forget about it. And then today my phone rings, 
And they called me and joined me straight into a live conference call with Heinz Ward with fans asking him questions, and it was awesome. And the coolest thing was to listen to this guy who has to make no apologies for anything, fully admit his first three years in the NFL, he wasn't 100% committed, and he did not get the job done. And when they started bringing in some first-round draft picks, that's when he put his, his nose to the grindstone, so to speak, and had, had the career that he was capable of. And have a, you know, to have a guy like that, with that much iconic you know, love from the Steelers fans, be able to stay straight to actual fans talking to him. Hey, you know, I really didn't get the job done. I really, you know, at a time where no one even thinks back that long, all he remembers what he did right. That was cool. And this is a very cool form of marketing. Uh, I don't know if, if you like other teams, you know, that if they're doing anything like this, you can check into it. But the Steelers are really doing a lot to reach out to their fans and say, look, we know you guys are important, and without you, we really don't have anything. Um, so I've always been a fan. If you want to uh, learn more, there's a link in the show notes today, and I get some kind of referral something. I don't know what. Uh, I get a point, or maybe somebody will call me and say thank you. I don't know. But if you would, consider if you want to be a Steeler Nation member, go to the Survival Podcast Episode 1507 and click the link. Now, for everybody else that doesn't care, let's talk about other things that do have to do with survivalism and modern survivalism and, uh, you know, liberty and liberty movement and things like that. So let's take some of your questions, uh, that you guys have emailed. Again, TSPC in the subject line, send it to Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. And, uh, fitting with the Duck Chronicles starting today, the first question today comes from Ed and it's actually about ducks. So that's kind of, Coincidental, I didn't really set it up that way, but it's nice sometimes when things work out. Question one from Ed is, can I grow ducks solely under a mature canopy? Background, I live in northern New Jersey, and by local ordinance, poultry must be of a certain distance from dwellings and property lines, because the government's here to help you, of course, folks. Uh, that puts them in the middle of the woods. That would be fine, but I'm concerned that if they do not get enough sun, they may run into some sort of disease. The picture attached was taken last June. That pretty much is the most sun the area gets. The picture he sent uh, is really pretty northeastern woods, pines, oaks, light coming through, shadow and light here and there. They'll be fine. Ducks love forests. They love they love woods. They love to root through things. And just because you house them there doesn't mean they can't ever go anywhere else, right? You can kind of let them move around and what have you. So um, it, it's almost ideal, a woodland, open woodland setting for ducks. There's so much forage. There'll be slugs and snails and bugs and grubs, and uh, you might just have some of the happiest ducks, uh, you know, east of the Mississippi, so to speak, uh, in the environment based on the photo that you have. I'm sure they're going to want some sun, but they'll find it. And see, ducks have these things called feet, and those feet are attached to these things called legs. So if there's like a little bit of sun over here and they want to warm their butts, they go over there and do it. It's called thermoregulation. It's one of the things that all animals thermoregulate, but birds do it an awful lot. Uh, and it's one of the things that you can see in the similar lineage genetically to reptiles. Um, so I would not worry about that. Make sure they have a place that uh, that's kind of their home base, so to speak, and do everything else right uh, with them and you'll be fine. Question two is a little more complicated. What would be the smallest duck pond where we do not have to dump the water and refill it over and over again? What would be the minimal elements to make a backyard pond work that way? Would that ever be possible? The pond is uh, less than 500 square feet or about 5,000 gallons. Unfortunately, in my case, 
I do not have much sun in that spot. The pond would get freshened up a bit as water would be filled from rain, and the terrain above uh, would move hard surface catchments. Uh, thanks, and keep up your great work. Well, you got a couple of things going that are good for you here. Number one, the fact that you don't have a lot of sun beating down on there to cause algal blooms and things like that is good. You're probably going to have a lot easier time keeping the water fresh. Um, the big thing isn't so much the surface area, but the volume and the surface area to volume ratio. Um, a very large pond in diameter that is only a foot deep is going to get skanked up really, really fast. Uh, a pond, let's say, of even a couple hundred square feet, let's say a pond as big as the room that I'm sitting in, which is about 10 by 12, I think, 120 square feet, that's, let's say, three or four foot deep at the deepest point, will probably do better than a pond twice as big and really shallow. And especially if you can create zones. So you have maybe an area of the pond that's about a foot deep, tailing up to six inches and being very gentle so ducks can get in and out. You want, you don't want to drop off. You want to walk in. And then if it slopes down and then there's another zone that's maybe four or five feet deep, you're going to have different temperatures and that water is going to move and turn over on its own. So that's going to help a lot if you can do that. The next thing is, I mean, when you start looking at a pond of about 500 square feet, that's that's pretty significant. You're looking at um, uh, dimensions of, you know, let's say 25 by 20. And 25 by 20 is going to hold probably more than 5,000 gallons if the average depth of a 25 by 20 pond is 3 feet You're looking at 11,000-ish gallons with an average depth of three feet. So if you had some four-foot area, some two-foot area, aggregated out to about three foot of depth and a 500-square-foot pond on the surface, that's 11,000 gallons. It's a lot of water. It's good, and it has some challenges, too. Because the next question would be, well, how many ducks? Four, five, six, eight on an 11,000-gallon pond of that size that especially do they have all-day access, or is it something that you're going to have like a contained area where they spend the night or whatever, and you let them out to range around uh, for half a day or every, you know, you come home from work and the ducks are let out for the evening and what have you on your home like you would a dog at a dog run. I, I can't even see it beginning to become a problem. Uh, eight, a dozen ducks on a pond that size every day, all day long, they'll stink it up pretty good. It will, you know, then you're looking at, well, what kind of aquatic, other aquatic life, uh, rushes, bull rushes, river cane, cattails, bamboo, uh, you're getting some duckweed on the surface and getting it highly vegetated. You don't have to have a lot of sun for that. That mottled sun that I see coming through will be fine. And remember, if you put in a 500 square foot pond, there ain't going to be a tree growing in the middle of it. There's a glade there. There's an opening. If your average tree were 25 foot tall, it'd be a true glade just being 25 foot wide. A glade, just a little piece of information, is when the distance in the opening is at least equal to the size of the tree. That's a little piece of useless knowledge. So you're going to have an opening just by creating the pond. And then you're probably going to want to clear some trees back a bit so you don't have a lot of root penetration issues. So you'd have plenty of light to grow aquatic life with that. So I would think about this more instead of how many ducks can go in that pond with a total systems mentality. Where's the pond go? Where does it drain to? Where does it take its nutrient flow? How do we pick it up? Is it better to put in two ponds and maybe connect them with a swale? 
so that when we have the catchment, the water spreads out into both of them, do we maybe put the swale a little bit into a key line situation like I was just talking about earlier? That would mean that the swale actually maybe runs on a 1% or even a half a percent um, downslope to the second pond. So maybe you have a little wing swale for catchment, fills the first pond. When the pond overflows, the water actually doesn't just spread out evenly. It actually moves from pond A to pond B and overflows uh, pond B through its overflow. That gets a movement through the system going on. That would be one way to handle it. With, let's say, mechanical means, another option would be put in smaller ponds, a couple little ponds, um, you know, 1,000-gallon affairs, and make sure you build them with the capability of actually draining them. And that's not that huge a deal to occasionally drain into a good system, whether it be a rice paddy mimic or a a just into the forest, into a productive forest system or what have you. There's a lot of ways you can do this. But I, I can't just tell you, if your pond's at least this big, you can put a whole bunch of ducks on it and not worry about it. Ducks will poo up a pond pretty good. I mean, that's what they do. They go in the water and they poo. If you're into any kind of small pond, I'm talking a couple hundred gallons, Uh, 50-gallon tubs, stuff like that, it, it's almost a daily affair. The bigger you go and the less heat and the less solar exposure, the longer you can go in between uh, with them. But that's at one point or another, uh, unless you're looking at true ponds, and I'd call I'd call the type of pond you're talking about a true pond. Uh, when you get into you know 5,000 or more gallons, As long as the population is not excessive and as long as you put other things in there to mitigate it, again, rushes, reeds, uh, cattails, that type of thing, to be nutrient uptake units, you're, you're probably going to be okay with a small flock. Um, and I would still build in a method with which to drain a pond of that size just because it's good to be able to do. gives you a lot of options with your maintenance on the pond. Um, and if you're going to get a pond that size, it's bigger than you think. That might be something to bring in an expert for if you're not comfortable doing it yourself. Hope that one helps. Let's take another question. Next question is a little complicated. It comes from Andrew about the millennial generation. It says, hey, Jack, how do I go about instilling this thought process of rugged individualism and self-determination that you talked about in your last question on 1506 in my own children, ages 8, 12, and 20? be nice to think it can be done by example, but it's got to be a little bit more involved than that, don't you think? Well, everything is a little bit more involved than the, the basic understanding and the basic explanation. But I think that the greatest thing we can do for our children is to be examples that we should dem demonstrate to emulate. Uh, it's a saying I've come up with. At least I think it's my saying. I've never heard anybody else say it. But demonstrate to emulate. And that means whatever you want to see other people do, well, you do it. And I think there's a, a tendency here to not understand the disconnect. So a father thinks, well, I am demonstrating rugged individualism, and I am showing my child how to work their ass off and get what they want. But see, your kid doesn't know what you did. And your kid thinks you're full of shit, by the way, in most instances. I, mean, yeah, I had to walk this school uphill both ways. And yeah, that can't happen. Ah, well, what if you walk through a valley? You walk uphill to the school, and you come down from the school and back uphill to get home, right? You can go uphill both ways. It's really true. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> just a little thought there for everybody on that old uh, that old story. But here's the deal. So what you don't 
understand is you and you know that when you were 18, how tough life was for you. You know how it was when you were 20. You know how it was when you were 22, 24. If you are successful in life, then all your kids probably really get is that you were successful and that you're successful now. And in their mind, you've always been that way. Very seldom do children really understand, even if they watch their father struggle, if there's enough success for long enough, kids don't get it. They don't get it. And let me tell you why. There's a couple things going on. One, they got to get old enough to understand that it's a struggle. Now, if you've had success by the time they're old enough, then they don't get it, just in and of itself. The next thing is, and this is a good thing, but it, you understand the dynamic here. You ask a little boy who the toughest guy in the world is, and he's going to tell you his dad. Even if his dad was 113 pounds and has a pocket protector because he's his dad. And you ask, you know, who's the prettiest girl in the world? He's going to say, my mom. Okay? Your kids idolize you. So a lot of your failures, a lot of your shortcomings, a lot of things you had to struggle through, do you think, well, they had to see that? They didn't see it. They watched it, but they didn't see it. They heard it, but it, or they, you, they were there when you, you vocalized it, right? They heard it, but they didn't listen. All they heard is, my dad rocks, my mom rocks. That's it. So now they're trying to live up to their idealized version of you that you've probably helped to spur along a little bit because we all want to be liked by our kids. We all want to be respected by our kids. We all want our kids to think of us as good providers, etc. So they don't really know the struggles. So I think one of the things that we can do to help our children achieve is admit our failures and our struggles. And, and not from this, like, I was tougher than you. Your generation is weak. But, like, let me tell you, kid, let me tell you how this works. So, like, what I realized when I had that closing question last Friday, uh, it's uh, unintentional millennial is uh, the handle used by the commenter that asked me. He said, well, how did you go from, you know, because I said in that show I worked for six bucks an hour, actually five fifty an hour, when I first got out of the Army and I came here to Texas And I talked about how I got to some level of achievement and success. And, and But he, will, he said, well, fill in the gap. Fill in the gap. And I realized when, when, when he said that, like that's a problem for the millennials. We don't fill in the gap. We talk about it. it was tough when I was a kid, and then I did this. And there's like 10 years in there. What the hell happened in those 10 years? Let me give you a little inkling of what happened in my 10 years. So when I had that job making $5.50 an hour packing boxes, I had met somebody who put me in touch with somebody who said, I can get you on as a contractor with MCI if you're willing to travel, and it'll pay about $11 an hour. Well, let's make it $550. That's double. I'm in, right? You'll have to buy some tools. You'll have to travel, but, you know, okay. Okay, fine. So I had this job, and I was killing myself. I, just because I knew I had, had something better coming maybe didn't mean I And I was a temporary worker. And eventually, after about 60 days there, and I went into temporary and was honest. I said, I'm, I, I'm waiting on something else, but I, I need a job for now. They said, well, if you want a full-time job, we'll hire you full-time. So they made me an offer to go, f to not really different hours, but to go from a temp agency to directly employed. And I went from $5.50 to woohoo, $7.40 an hour, baby, making the big bucks, right? So and it got a little bit of benefits and all like that. So I'm working in this warehouse. And I'm working nine-hour days and then uh, a four-hour Friday. So they kept it at 40 hours is how they were doing it. 
Uh, and then it flipped another, like it changed on how that worked based on demand. But basically, they, they wanted you to work overtime without paying it. It's how they, they figured out how to do it. They would rotate people through to keep you at that 40 hours and not pay a dime of overtime. And it was like 120 degrees in this place. And finally, the opportunity comes through to take this job with MCI. Here's the deal. The $11 an hour includes the per diem, which is what they pay you to travel on. They cut it in half, so they're paying me $5.50 an hour when I'm already making, I'm paying taxes on, and $5.50 an hour tax-free. And unless you get some overtime, you're, you're stuck with that. And by the time you pay your expenses to travel, uh, let's just face it, you're, you're, you're back to $5.50 an hour. I could barely pay to be on the road. So I had to make it pay better because I had to take the opportunity to learn. So I stayed in uh, this hotel when I was in, when I was on the road in Houston that was just really a place that I would not be comfortable with my son at that age staying. It was dangerous. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, and it was, uh, $24 a night. Now this is a few years ago, okay, but still this is not a good place. This is not the place you want to stay. But I did because I had to. When I traveled to other locations, if I couldn't find a place like that, and sometimes you just can't, what I would do is I'd be on the road for five nights and I would sleep in my truck one or two nights a week uh, to make five for the privilege of making an honest five fifty an hour in most situations. Occasionally, I would get on an overtime heavy situation and make some money. It would always seem to be just enough to get out of whatever hole I was in, though. So like we went to New Orleans and we were working 80 to 90 hours a week and then we were there when a hurricane hit. It wasn't any of the big ones you probably remember, but a hurricane hit. It did a lot of damage to a lot of circuits. So in addition to our project, we were also bringing circuits back up and the longest week I ever worked in my life in a single job was 114 hours. 114 hours. That's a long week. We were, we actually had cots and we were sleeping at the terminal and I still wasn't making any money. But I got some experience under my belt with cabling and communication systems and communications equipment. And then I met a, a guy playing darts one night that I was home that said, well, I have a cabling company that I run and we do cable, we do fiber optics and things like that. So I was able to get a job for $12 an hour and not travel. So that was woohoo, big money, 12 bucks an hour, man. Okay, right. So uh, very quickly, I, I, I showed a talent for the optical side of things, and I ended up on a long-term contract with Lockheed. That was where the story picked up, where I was all the stuff I left out of. But this was years of this shit, and the truth is, I didn't make any money at Lockheed at all. And when I was at Lockheed, I met a guy that, that said, I do contract work for this guy that has a, a cable company as well. It's more like cable TV and apartments. And uh, if you want, I'll introduce him to you. So I meet this guy. His name's Raleigh. And uh, I start working with him. And so I'm working. I work till 5 o'clock at night for, for, for Lockheed. And this was a different situation. I was working nine hours a week and eight-hour Friday and getting every other Friday off. That's all my contract with Lockheed was. So no overtime again. Working overtime without getting paid for it, but getting every other Friday off. So I could be all day Friday to work for Raleigh and tell him, hey, look, every other Friday I'm available. I'm available Saturdays. I'm available Sundays. I'm available after five. So I was doing installations, head-end build-outs, all types of things for this Raleigh guy. And I was probably working about 30 to 40 hours a week part-time for Raleigh as a contractor plus my full-time contracting job where I was actually an employee to the company that was contracting me. So now I'm back to working 80 hours a week, and I was getting about – Uh, about 12, 13 bucks from Raleigh and, you know, 12 bucks from the company that I work for. 
uh, eventually got a whopping raise to $13 an hour. Wow, right? And uh, so basically I was working all this overtime but not making any overtime rate. It was just more hours, more work, more money, more learning stuff. Along the way, I just got tired of it all, and I decided I want to go into sales. And this is my first attempt. And I went into selling insurance. I did that for about four weeks. I got really good really fast, and they started having me service accounts with, like, old people and stuff. And I could really quick tell I was ripping people off. I hated that, so I quit. I ended up talking to Raleigh and saying, hey, could I come back and, and start doing, you know, contract? Cause I need I need a job now. I, I don't want to go back to this place, and I need money. He said, well, now that you don't have a job, why don't you work full-time for me? So then I went to work full time for him. So then I actually made a little bit of money because I was working, now I was back to working 60, 70 hours for Raleigh, but at least as I was an employee, now I was getting overtime. Woo hoo. Big money baby. And there were times when I worked seven days a week for six or seven weeks straight without a day off from that job. I had subcontractors I was looking out for and, you know, he paid me what he could and that just, it just was what it was. And I learned a lot from that. And eventually, the reason I ended up not there is this guy, with all these subcontractors and all these, these underground construction work, ends up delaying payments to the subs for a couple weeks. And I'm the guy they're wanting to kill and beat with a pipe, right? And I'm going, he's going to take care of it. And then one day I show up and everything's gone. And he pocketed a bunch of money and disappeared, probably to the Bahamas, with his former wife and left his existing wife and, and just everything's gone and disappeared. So then I'm with no job, people that probably want to kill me, that have heavy equipment and comparing me in a hole in the ground, and uh, no prospects. And that was the first job I made some real money at. Yeah, it wasn't all golden. And that led to a sales job, 24K a year plus commission and a promise to be fired in six months if I wasn't making my quota. And everything went up from there. But you know what, when you talk to your kids... This is what you have to tell them. If you want your kids to be resilient, you have to be honest about your challenges and your successes and your failures. You can't always be the guy that was better on a football team than you ever were and expect your kid to accept that there's challenges in life. You have to talk about your failures. You can't always act like you were a great father when you know sooner at some times you were weak as a father or you screwed up as a father or you were too hard on your kid. Right, and you can't. You also can't forget that sometimes you're probably too easy. If I have a regret with my son, there were some times where I was a little too hard on him. But overall, my biggest regret is I made his life too easy. I didn't make his life hard enough. I didn't make him work hard enough for things. So you got to be honest about that too, and say, "Hey, look, I made some things that were too hard on you, and I made some a lot of things maybe that were too easy on you." And you got to step up now. So you have to have these real conversations, but it's still about demonstrating. But you got to remember that you in your head know, if you're 30 or 40 or 50 years old, you know all of the history of how you got there, and you know the real version of that history. Your kid knows what you've told them, and out of what you've told them, what they've chosen to believe. And they have two different concepts they're looking at you with. And that is the first part of their life where you were like Superman to them. Somewhere along the line, as kids hit the teenage years, they realize that it can't be that ideal the old man's not that great. The, the, the mom's not that great. And you become full of shit. It's a natural progression in growing up. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. And you keep holding them to a higher standard. And you hold yourself to higher standards. But I don't think we can create a rugged generation of individualists if we're not honest to them about all the stuff we screwed up 
in addition to how we became what we are. Because then when they run into that adversity, and you say, well, they don't know how to deal with it like I did. Well, they don't know you, they don't know you had it. They don't know you had it. They know what they've seen. Dad has put food on the table. Dad has kept a roof overhead, right? That's what they know. So to, to fully demonstrate, we have to be honest about the failures. Uh, so that's what I left out about that answer last week. I, I hope that's helpful to some of you guys, both the younger generation, uh, to understand how hard it really was for many of us that you think had it easier, and for my generation and older to understand how to talk to your kids and your grandkids and your nephews and your nieces and, and try to challenge them and also acknowledging the struggles that they're going to have because they're the same ones you did. And to stop letting this be one more freaking divide, America. This is one more way that they take us and they, they play us for fools. The people in charge, they want the young generation to think, Dad had it easy. And they want you to think, your kid sucks. Because then they can control you. They divide you by male and female, black and white, rich and poor. You know, I mean, uh, young, old. Anything they can do to drive a wedge between people, they're gonna do. Don't let them do it with your own family. Don't let them, don't let them tell you this generation sucks. In fact, I think the next time someone tells you how shitty the generation coming up is, you should tell them to open their freaking mind and open their freaking eyes and look how badass some of these young people are. And tell them if they're gonna tell you how bad your kids suck, that you don't really give a shit what they have to say. I'm sick of hearing how I suck because I raped the planet and left nothing for the young generation. And I'm sick of hearing about how they suck because it's all freaking bullshit. It's all freaking bullshit. You've been lied to so many times. You can't even tell anymore when they're lying to you. Here's how you know. When it's anybody's fault but yours, they're lying to you. And when it's 100% fault of you, then they're lying to you. And when it drives a wedge between you and the people you should be helping up or helping out, they're lying to you. You know how you know when they're lying to you? When they're opening their freaking mouth and when they're putting the media crap message down your freaking throat, they're lying to you. They're always lying to you because it sells and it controls. And if you're ever going to get control, whether you're a young millennial trying to figure out what you want in life, Or an old man wishing you had done more when you had the chance. Or a middle-aged guy like me in the middle trying to help both sides. You're never going to get anywhere until you realize that everything that the, 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 the corporate masters say, that the media masters say, that the public education shoves down into your head, that the government shoves down into your head, is steaming, stinking bullshit, and there is nothing left for you to do but man up, woman up, and work with what you got. And appreciate each other. You want your kids to stand up and be rugged individualists, then you better tell them the truth. That all of this misinformation is bullshit. And use the word bullshit. I don't care if you normally don't cuss, if you think it's vulgar. There's a time and place for certain strong words. And there's no better word to explain what is being programmed into the minds of our people than absolute, 100% steaming, stinking bullshit. You have to be an individual if you want to raise an individual. And when you say it takes more than that, that's their words messing with your head. And you got no damn time for it. Let's take another one.
This next one comes from Dave, and the links that he sent me don't work. But it is a story that I've seen a lot of versions of. I'll look up some version of it so you can see it. And it's about the fact that there's schools that are now teaching our children if there's an active shooter, if somebody comes to the, to the classroom and wants to hurt you, that they're saying the kids should all bring in a can of soup or a can of beans, some canned food, and keep a can in every uh, desk. And that if, if, you, if you can't get out and the guy comes in a room, locking the door don't work, everybody get up and throw your soup can at him. And there's a bunch of people talking about how stupid that is. That's because you ain't never been hit in the freaking face with a can of soup. That's why. Listen, I am for taking teachers that want to carry, that are responsible. And here's my thing. If I don't trust you to carry a gun around my kid, I don't want you around my kid at all. Okay? So if I wouldn't trust a person, especially with some training, To carry a gun as a teacher, I don't want them to be a teacher. That doesn't mean I think they should have to carry a gun, but if they wanted to and I said, I don't really think that guy should carry a gun, then don't hire them to teach our kids. So we'll let that go for now. But we could arm, we could put security guards in schools and make them more like prisons than they already are. That'd be great. Um, I'm not saying maybe we shouldn't in certain situations, but that's what you're asking for. Please take the pseudo-prison and make it more like a real prison. Just understand that's what you're asking for. Arming teachers, I totally get that, because here's how I feel. Whatever the regulations for carry are in your state, it should apply to teachers equally. <gasps> But Jack, there'd be guns in school. And anybody who wants to kill you in a school will bring a gun there, because they're already breaking the law by killing you, dummy. So that's neither here nor there. But this is what I'm not for. Taking a whole bunch of seventh graders and saying, let's, let's strap everybody with a Glock so they can defend themselves. Okay? That's dumb. That will have kids killing each other. That will have kids blowing their brains out. Okay? And you might say, well, when I was in seventh grade, I could have carried a gun concealed and been responsible with it. Maybe. 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 But I don't want to make that a standard practice. And if you're using your brain, you don't either. Okay? So we have seventh graders, eighth graders, even 11th, 12th graders, right? These are kids that are 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, hunting and all. That's fine. Sporting events, adult supervision. Yeah, that's great. Carrying a gun to school. I don't think anybody's for that. I think college students that are adults that already have the right to carry everywhere else, we get that. But this, this whole, no, we don't want juveniles carrying guns to school. But we also don't want them to hide in a corner and cower when somebody tries to kill them. We would prefer they get out. I did a lot of this when Sandy Hook happened about how we should actually handle these things, that you're not helping children by putting them in a corner and telling them all to hide. Because you can't hide in a corner. That's a great place to get killed. You got to get out. Then if there's no other, you can't get out, then you hide. But as soon as you are discovered, you have to fight. So all of you out there that are like, I can't believe this scene is so stupid. Think, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go go find about 30 kids and have them all stand in a room with a can of beans. And I want you to tell them, when I open that door, all of you throw that can at my face as hard as you can. I want you to see what happens. I want you to think now. I want you to think. I want you to pull your perception bias out of your ass and be an individual like we just talked about and stop seeing every single thing that you don't completely agree with that has anything to do with a gun is being anti-gun. Because most of you are smart enough that you wouldn't take your sixth grader, strap a Glock on their hip, and send them off to school, even if you could. 
And you certainly wouldn't want Johnny Dingbat down the road doing the same thing. Okay? So you already know we can't put knives and guns in our children's hands in school. We know we can't do that. We know that somebody might come try to hurt them. We know that putting a bunch of armed guards in the school, first of all, what if the, okay, we'll have an armed guard. He's over here. Have you seen how big some of these schools are now? How many people can die in the meantime? We have to teach our kids to fight back. We have to give them a means to fight back. Am I saying this is the best thing you can fight back with? No, but I think it actually has a lot going for it. First of all, I, I would anybody that doubts that, if you'd like to come to my house and let me Noel and Ryan a can of pork and beans at your head and let you see what it feels like, I will be happy to do it. And if you're still not convinced, I'll be happy to round up about 14, 15 teenagers to give you half the average class size of them coming at your head at one time and see how you do with that. And then they're also trained, by the way, immediately to rush you and, and crush you and beat you and kick you and bite you. And that's exactly what we... You want rugged individualism? This is it, guys. Guy comes in with a gun, beat his ass with a big can of beans. You can't do that. With 30 cans, you can. And you know what? Dude, this is, a, this is where the, the, the people with this perception bias nonsense that every time somebody on the news says clip and it was supposed to be magazine, it's anti-gun propaganda. No, the guy just doesn't know the difference. And by the way, it's not that big a deal. Okay? Does this increase the odds of survival for a child in an active shooter situation if getting out was not possible and the gunman has now come through the door? And if you don't think the answer is yes, again, I would love the opportunity to explain this to you in a way that will make perfect sense. I'll tell you what. Since you don't want it in the face, because that might leave a mark, how about you stand about 20 feet away from me and I hurl a can of beans into your chest and let you see what that's like. And then think of it times 30. Is this great? No. It's better than hide. It's better than go in a corner and beg for mercy. It's better than sitting under the table like the kids at Columbine did while these kids walked around cocky, shooting people one at a time, deciding who lives and dies, and everybody cowers and hides. Yeah, it's a lot better. It's a lot better. It's the mentality that most people have by the time they're adults that means that no one will ever successfully hijack an airplane with a knife again or probably a gun. No matter what you believe about 9-11, the day that people got in their heads, hey, if a guy hijacks a plane, they might be flying it into a building or the ground or the ocean or whatever, not just taking it somewhere. Okay, he's going to hijack the plane. I like my odds of killing him, beating the shit out of him, tying him up with a seatbelt, smashing his face in with my foot, a hell of a lot better than the odds of me surviving a 747 impacting anything at 500 miles an hour. But the government did it. I'm not saying they didn't. I'm saying the mentality of people is, hey, you know what? This guy wants to hijack my plane. He wants me dead. I'm going to kill him back. That is survival. That's what I'm not saying the people behind this program are the smartest people in the world or anything. But what's a better what's a better implement that can be used as a weapon in a school by middle school students in that situation that would be okay and acceptable to bring to school? What do you want them to have? Maybe they should all have a, 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 a what do you call it, pillowcase full of doorknobs. That's a pretty good weapon, but that's, that's kind of a gang weapon. You know why I actually think this is a good idea? It's heavy enough to work. It will hurt. It is a way to fight back. And you know what I would do? I would put this in every school in America. And I would say at the end of the school year, 
Everybody bring your can up here and put it in the box. We'll give it to homeless people. Give it to the hungry in our community, whatever. One year, one school year is nine months. And I'd say put it in every day. Everybody goes to the homeroom, put your can in your desk, leave it there. That means when the kids change classrooms, there's always a can of food in there. I don't know a better tool for the job. I think it's it's sad that we live in a state where we have to think this way. But what what's your plan? Those of you that think this is anti-gun propaganda, what would be your plan? And I want to hear from anybody that wants to let me hit them in the face with a with a with a 16-ounce can of Van, uh, Van Camp's pork and beans or your choice. You you can pick any brand you want, but I'm getting a full-size can, baby. You're not getting one of these little bitty freaking tomato paste cans. And I'm going to rifle that thing at you. I'm going to tell you what. There's a lot of 14-year-olds that can throw a baseball a lot harder than me. Before you jump on something about it being stupid, ask yourself, is it something that might work? Is it better than what we have now? And if your perception bias is in the way, well, it's up to you to fix that. I'm just saying. Here's another interesting question. This is from Brian. What should I do with 40-year-old trees that are growing on my pond dam? I have an old pond that holds water pretty well. It's a little less than an acre and 15 feet deep in the middle. The dam has not been maintained and has returned to dense, brushy woods. Many of the trees are about one foot in diameter, Osage, orange, cedar, hackberry, etc. I know not to plant trees on a dam wall, but once they're there, is it better to cut them down and let the roots rot or leave them alone and make bigger roots? Location is about an hour north of you. Um, leave them alone. If they're 40-year-old trees, they've been there for 40 years, and your pond's still holding water. If you cut them down, yeah, the roots probably will begin to rot, die, and shrink. And it's kind of like this. It would be better if I didn't take a great big, sharp, pointed stick and poke it into your chest. But once that happens, till we get you to an emergency room, probably a good idea that I don't pull it out. So, yeah, you put some ducks on that pond to help if it's weeping a little bit. But if it's 40 years old... And it's still a good pond. It's probably best to leave it alone. If you're going to get into a rehabilitation situation, you're probably going to have to drain it anyway and clean it out and do a bunch of maintenance on it. And that could come at some point where you decide it's worth the investment. And at that point, you might, you might remove the trees. In my view, natural systems that hold water like this do so with trees all the time. There's probably a silt layer on the bottom of that pond about a foot and a half, two feet deep. Probably all real fine stuff that weeps down in them little cracks, swells up clays and stuff like that, and what have you. I wouldn't do anything. If you're happy with the way it is, I wouldn't do a daggone thing with it. If you start to see loss of water happen, that's when I would get an experienced person with ponds involved. What do we need to do? It might be, hey, you know what, get a little John boat and go drop about 150 bags of uh, bentonite along the dam line and let that bentonite get in there. It might be, hey, you know what, do what Jack says. Go get yourself 50 ducks, let them sit on there and shit on there for a, a year and then you know make a bunch of duck soup and uh, make them go away if you don't want to keep them. But I would leave it alone, I'm just saying. Anybody with any ideas on that, please comment. Today's episode, again, today's episode is 1500 uh, and seven.
fact, before I move on, I got to tell you, I've seen many ponds in many places, old farm ponds and things like that, with trees everywhere, all around them, where you got to cut a hack away through to be able to fish in them. Uh, and most of them do tend to still hold water. It still is probably not a good idea to plant a bunch of uh, deep tap-rooted, large-rooted trees on that brand-new dam you just put all that money into. But if it's already there, it's already there. Let's go ahead again and take a different one. Uh, gun question here from John. John says, is there any merit to the idea of breaking in a barrel? Details. I just bought an 1896 11, and I want to know if there's any procedure that I should follow. I watched the Military Arms Channel video wherein the host with a Mazen Nagant has problems with grouping size after three rounds. A friend claims it could be due to improper barrel break-in. My feelings on barrel break-in procedures are... They're absolute total bullshit, and they don't apply to you. And maybe some barrel lapping or something like that might squeeze out an extra millionth of a quadrillionth of a of a of a millionth of an inch for the perfect shooter, maybe, and probably not even for them. Um, Now, there are things you need to do, like clean your barrel if it's all full of cosmoline. You don't want to go out there and just start shooting through it without cleaning it first and, you know, cleaning it after. But if you had a gun that shot well for three rounds and then all of a sudden doesn't shoot well, the, the, the most likely thing is the guy shooting it started screwing up. And then he got angry and he started screwing up more and then he shot a lot more and then the barrel gets really hot. And when the barrel's really hot, there is no doubt that it won't quite have the same point of aim, and then you got an angry shooter shooting more, and it gets worse and worse and worse. That's most likely the problem. This barrel break-in thing's a bunch of crap. Here's how I feel about it. The, the rifle industry, the gun-making industry, but specifically rifles, in fact, rifles that are shot for accuracy, so bolt actions, custom ARs, things where people go out and are proud of that dime-sized group, etc., is one of the most competitive industries in the world. The most competitive industries in the world. There is no place where people duke it out more. Go look at how big SHOT Show is, just as an example. If breaking in a barrel would make rifles more accurate and not breaking them would make them ruined, uh, manufacturers would do it for you. Some of the break-in procedures I've seen amount to putting a thousand rounds of ammo through a very high-velocity barrel like a .22-250, and you've basically just taken a lot of life out of the barrel for no good reason. Barrels are machined to extremely accurate tolerances. It's not necessary. I know right now someone's typing angry with Jack, and you don't know. I was a gunsmith. I took my correspondence course from United Gunsmith Idiots International, and everybody knows stupid. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just not necessary. It isn't. There's nothing to it at all. Nothing. Zero. Zilch. If you can't shoot a rifle well, either you're pro you're the problem, or the rifle, in fact, it is, itself is the problem, but breaking the barrel in isn't going to change that. It really isn't. Uh, there are certain things you shouldn't do to barrels, like shoot them a real lot, really, really fast with, you know, like these high, like, again, you can cause some issues with that, but it's not about break-in. It's not about break-in. It's a myth. 
It's a myth. One more time. It's a myth. Don't worry about it. Let's take another call. Or not another email. Here's a very interesting question. Matthew in Iowa says, In a minarchist or anarchist society, would there be corporations? I know there would still be companies. But would corporations exist without the regulatory, tax, and legal advantages the current system provides? Just a thought. Love the show. Matthew. Um, my answer is most likely yes. It depends. I mean, in a minarchist society, definitely. In an anarchist society, did we get to anarchism through the evolution of human thought and mind uh, the way that we, we would like to, that we see as the perfect thing that could be the future of humanity? Or did we get there through Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome, etc.? So let's leave anarchy out of this right now. Let's look at minarchism, which means the smallest government possible. And not having tons of, you know, advantages for corporations and things like that. Uh, this is a problem. People think that, like, so the corporations are apart from us. You know, a corporation is just a structure that a company exists in. A corporation is an agreement between individuals. So even in a libertarian world, a minarchist world, hell, an anarchist world, if you got there through evolving. Uh, mentally, which is how you'd actually get there the right way, um, you would have corporations or corporate structures because they make things understandable. So when, when I create a company with other individuals, I don't think to myself, I want a corporation so I can get a tax break. Because you don't get a tax break. I get tax shaft in the ass. Okay, I don't think I want to do this so that I can be immune from lawsuits because I can still get my ass sued both as a company and an individual now. By the way, I'm just saying The reason I set up a corporation, the primary motivation is so that we have a structure that determines exactly what everybody does, how everybody does it, what everybody's role in it is, how everybody's compensated, how we make decisions, contract agreement between the members of the company. Now, there are certain benefits and advantages to operating as a corporation or a limited liability company or a nonprofit corporation or what have you in the world that are directly because of government and the way government treats you. There are some. And that's a bigger impetus for some people to form one. But th th this question actually shows a deeper problem. This belief that people have that it's the corporations. It's the people running the corporations, folks. Because there's really great corporations and there's really shitty ones. Because some corporations are run by really great people and some are run by evil bastards. Okay? That's how it works. The American Rod Cross is an example of one that you think of really well, but really craps on people. If you don't believe that, talk to a Haitian. And ask him where that $360 million that we gave the American Red Cross went to in Haiti. It didn't. That's where it went. It didn't happen. I know that from real relief workers, from small nonprofits, right on the ground in Haiti. That it didn't get there. That after multiple trips, Brandon from Florida, who goes down and does these mission trips, tells me, you know what? In all those trips to Haiti, I saw a Red Cross one time on a great big poly water tank, sitting in the middle of a field with no water in it. So there's an example of a corporation that you think is really great. Nonprofit, purple breather hippies love it, but yet they take the money, the CEO flies around in a G5 jet, and they don't put the money where they advertise the money is going to go. Just saying. So corporations are just a thing, right? To blame corporations in of themselves 
for the problems or to point to them as, as what's good in the world is like blaming a gun instead of the guy that shot somebody with it. Or it's like holding up the gun is like some glorious, heroic thing instead of the guy that used the gun to save a life. Or to say that guns feed us instead of saying, no, the guy that knows how to use a gun and kill an animal with it feeds us, right? Or feeds, or feeds himself. So a corporation is just a, a shell, a structure, an agreement, a contract, a way of doing business. And there's many advantages to doing business as a corporation that aren't necessarily directly attributed to government. Now, would you call it a corporation is a more interesting question. Because you said, I know there'd be companies, but would there be corporations? There might, if you got into a small enough non-governed world, the, the word might change. The word might change. The way, like, who would you file it with? That'd be an interesting thing, Right. So let's say that there was no government or a very tiny government said, companies do whatever, pure, pure capitalism, do whatever you want. You know, we step in for contract mediation when, when both sides can't come to an agreement. And that, otherwise, we're out of your business. So now who do I file my corporate agreement with? Well, probably a third party, individual, arbiter of my choice that I and other members of my corporation choose we know going into this there may come a point where we can't agree on things and now that we can't run down to uncle sugar and sue our our fellow man and we have to solve our problems we would probably then think far enough ahead to name an arbiter or several arbiters of choice and we might file that paperwork with them for the purpose of preserving the integrity of the company And we might also register with other private arbiters because we're going to say, look, there's going to come to a point where I can't make my customer happy and they can't make me happy and we have something that's sticky. It's not simple. Where a customer's being a pain in the ass and we want them to go away and they won't go away. Or we've given them a refund, but that's not good enough. Or we've said, hey, we've delivered and they say, no, you haven't. It's a significant thing. So we might already have then in this minarchist society basically a statement to our customer base that should a disagreement arise, this is our policy, and should we not be able to resolve them, we use Arbiter XYZ. Okay, here's here's their company, here's what they do, here's who they work for, here's what people say about them. If you don't like them, you don't like us, don't come along. Because when people say, well, that can't work, because you, you pay them, they work for you, so they'll do what you say. Not if they want a good reputation in the marketplace. See, so the corporate structure is about a functional relationship. Now, there's no doubt that it's abused. There's no doubt that people hide behind corporate structures. But the majority of corporations aren't that kind of corporation. The majority of corporations are owned by one to ten people. They're not publicly traded. And the average corporation does under a million dollars a year in business. And would there be less corporations in a minarchist state? Probably. But there might actually end up being more. Because people might understand the advantages and the reasoning by having things clearly spelled out in interbusiness relationships, whether that be to consumer or business to business, doesn't really matter. It's an interesting question and a good one, Matthew. Thank you for that. Let's take another one. 
Well, this next question is really a great one. It's from Dan at Zion Farm. Um, it says, I have questions in regard to handling the remains of an animal on your property. Uh, property. Specifically, how to handle an animal that has died due to sickness or has been attacked. And two, what to do with the remains of a processing animal on your own property. Let's start out with the first one. An animal that either got sick and died or was attacked and is now dead. Now, what do I do with it? Do I just throw it away? What do I, you know, what do I do? Like every good question, every really good question almost is always answered with it, it depends. That's, that's the case here. So let's start with attacked. Let's say that I have a chicken that was attacked by something laying in the field, tore up pretty good, but there's still a carcass there. Am I going to eat that chicken if I don't know what attacked it? No. 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 I don't know what did that. I don't know if it's something with, uh, with maybe rabid that might have attacked it. Why is it still there? You know? Um, so something that's attacked, by a coyote, a chicken, a fox, anything that could be a carrier of disease and what have you, or it's possible that's what it was, I'm probably just going to dispose of the carcass, either through composting or a small, like a chicken or something, throw in the garbage, honestly, if you don't have a compost pile ready to go to do it, because we'll get to that in a second. If I had a chicken killed by a hawk, I would have no problem using that that animal. I, I just don't see a, a bird killed by a bird as being something that would be a huge potential for disease vector transfer. And I'm not going to feed an animal that was attacked by an unknown animal to my to my animals, to my dogs or what have you either. So that's the case there. Sickness, some kind of disease or whatever, I'm going to have a hard time eating that or putting that animal into any of my other animals. What killed it? I, I, I don't know, man. It's just... I kind of feel like the disease thing is a non-starter, man. If, if we have to, we're, we're using a front-end loader to compost the whole cow. Uh, and that's something that actually happened uh, at, a, at one of the perm, at the Permethos farm. It's a big difference, though. You have an animal the size of a cow. It's a lot of meat that's going to waste, so to speak. But if something that's been diseased, you know, we're trying to eat the highest quality food we can. So disease, not no-go. An animal that's been injured in a normal course of activities that I've decided needs to be cold, that's different. So if I have a chicken that's tore up pretty good from a, a fight with another rooster and I decide I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put them out. Well, I'd, I'd eat that. No problem. But disease and illness, no. Attacked depends on what it's been attacked by. And can I identify it? And probably anything other than something killed by a raptor bird, I, I'm probably not eating. Now, what to do with remains? So for whatever reason, we've slaughtered an animal. What do we do with its remains? Now, the goal, of course, is to use as much as we can. The composting thing. You know, a guy like Joel Salmon is producing an awful lot of, of chicken waste that's, that's not marketable and you don't want to eat, like intestines and lungs and stuff like that. So that process is simply having a big enough hot compost pile. So if you want to do this, I would learn to compost first. I would learn to compost to where when you go to turn that thing on the fourth day, your first turn, that thing is hot. And on the second turn, it'll burn your hand hot, right? If you compost like that, you're going to need a cubic meter of material minimum to get that kind of a reactive composting. There'll be almost no odor, even with a live carcass in there. A live carcass, a dead carcass in there. Or guts or feathers or whatever. And by the third turn, you won't recognize it. By about the fifth turn, there'll be nothing left. I've seen fairly large animals composted to where you can't find bits of bone. If it's a hot, active, turned compost, that is. So let's start with the smaller animals and move up from there because they're totally different in, in the, the, the quantity of what we have to deal with. 
unless we've slaughtered, let's say, a ton of small animals. If you, uh, 500 chickens is a lot of waste material to deal with. So when I do a chicken or a group of chickens or even a dozen or more chickens, what I'll do is I take the hearts, the livers, and the gizzards all as food. Whether I'm going to eat them or they're going to end up going to the dogs or whatever, doesn't matter. They're going to be used to make stock and then go to the dogs. The heart, the liver, and the gizzards I'm keeping. Um, the stomach, the gut, the lungs, all of that jazz, the intestines, that's all garbage to me. It's either going to, if I have a, a big bunch of composting material that's about ready to get done, it can go in a bucket and go in the center of that compost pile. Yes, fine. I don't make a ton of compost though. Uh, so it's probably just needing to go away. So what I do with it is I get a great big contractor type hefty sack and I dump it in there. Uh, if there's a lot, if it's a little, a regular old garbage bag. And I put that garbage bag in a second garbage bag, and I tie the first garbage bag in a knot, and then a second garbage bag in a knot. And I put it in my freezer, my chest freezer, or my big cooler, depending on what day it is. And on Thursday morning, when I put my garbage out to the, the curb, I take it out of there, because now it stinketh not. And I put it in there, and it goes away, and it's gone. That's what I do with it. I don't want to feed intestines to my dogs. They're not big on eating it. Some people have livestock guardian dogs that will eat stuff like that. That's fine. I would probably take very much the same uh, steps with a rabbit um, or, or any other small animal. I pretty much do the same thing. The feathers, the feathers of my birds all go to compost. All the blood goes to compost. And feathers and blood, I don't necessarily have to have a big pile going, but I don't want to be processing quite a bit. I'll make sure at least I have a bunch of old wood chips or something like that, lots of carbon. And if nothing else, I'll just put some wood chips in the bottom of my slaughter bucket to catch the blood and all those wood chips that suck the blood up, and I'll take the bloody wood chips and the feathers and I'll bury them under wood chips. And as long as there's enough carbon there, they stinketh not. And the carbon will bind up with the nitrogen and the stink and stench and hold it, and later when that material can be added to compost, it composts just fine. So that's how I deal with that. So that that's that. And everything else gets used. Uh, feet, what I usually do with feet is when you clean your chickens, you cut the feet off, you know, at that joint. And I have the scalding water out and I dip them in the scalding water. And then you can pull um, the, the like, sheaths off of the nails and everything. And there's, like, a dirt, like, a lot of times older birds have dirty calluses. You can just kind of pull that top layer of skin off so there's not a lot of dirt and everything, which really isn't necessary because I'm going to tell you what I do with them next. I feed them to the dogs. The dogs love chicken feet. Sometimes I'll put some aside to make stock with because they're a really good source of gelatin. Right? They make a really rich stock. But usually, you know, if I'm killing three or four birds, cull birds, I just... Throw the dog a, 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 a chicken foot, throw the other dog a chicken foot. They eat them like chew toys, put the others in a, a bag, keep them in the refrigerator, and over the next few days they go away into, to, to be made into dog compost. All right? So there you go. Um, and that's pretty much it. Because then the bones get roasted and made into stock. You know, however I make the chicken, whatever I do with it, if I roast the whole chicken, then I take the bones and make stock. If I part the chicken out and debone it, I take the bones and I put them in the oven, I roast them till they're brown, and then I make stock. And by the time I'm done making stock, well, those bones, you can pick up a big chicken bone, like a thigh bone or a leg bone, and take your hand and go, and just crumbles into, and that goes to the dogs with the cartilage and all, like, I'll put carrots and celery 
uh, in with it when I boil it, and the carrots and celery are all like mush by the time it's done. And I just mash it all up, and that's dog food and cat food. That's it for me, because I don't have cows or pigs or, or things like that. So looking at those, now we're in a situation where we have more waste. Um, the skin of these animals does have some tanning value or what have you, but I'm usually not patient enough when I do a deer or a wild hog, for instance, to skin uh, at the level where that hide is really usable and somebody's going to want it. I usually just get it done. There's some holes in it. A little hair gets under me here and there. I wash off. I don't worry about it. I want it skin. I want it done. So the skin is garbage. Garbage bag, Thursday morning, out of the cooler or freezer and into the garbage can and goes away. When I lived in Pennsylvania where we had a lot of woods behind us, I just took all the stuff I didn't want and put it out there and let nature take care of it. And it all would disappear relatively quickly. So the feet, the hooves, and stuff like that all would go out there. You know, now I might take and, and, and take those and, and, and prepare them for the dogs. Like you could take the, the bottom part of the foot and the lower ankle that really doesn't have any meat on it with a lot of smaller ruminants and uh, skin that off and roast that, and it would be a pretty good dog chew. So I'd probably do that now. When I hunt, usually I'm in the woods, and when I gut an animal, I take the organ meats that I want, and the rest just stays there for the coyotes. Back home, when you're killing a cow or a pig, you don't have that. So to me, here's what's really usable, and I know you can use everything. They say when you prepare a pig properly, you use everything but the squeal. Okay, But to me, personally, this is how I feel. I don't want to clean intestines to make sausage casings. Intestines are full of things that I know it can be done safely, but I don't want to do it, and, and you can buy casings really, really cheap, and somebody else has done it. So those are throwaway things. I don't want to feed the intestines even to my dogs. I don't want them sick and pooing in the house and whatever. I highly doubt it's going to kill them. I just don't want to do it, so the intestines go away. Lungs, I don't see much use for I guess they could be made into some sort of dog food or something, but they're a throwaway item. Liver, definitely save. Some livers I like to eat, some livers I'm not so crazy about, but if nothing else, it can be sliced up, boiled, and given to dogs in moderation. Never give your dog a half a pound of liver at one time. He will projectile poop on the walls of your house. It's, it's a bad thing, just don't do it. You'll find those S marks where they drag their butt on the carpet if you do it. Trust me, it was done by my father when I, was a, when I was a young boy. He made that mistake. It's one I never repeated. I learned my lesson from it. Uh, but liver for eating and for dog food, both are good. The kidneys, I'm not a fan of eating kidney, but it's a pretty high-quality organ meat, and it's something I definitely feed to the dogs as well. A heart I see as a steak. I see hearts in all animals. I, don't even, I look at them as the organ that's not an organ. They're not like any other organ out there. So hearts, I, I slice up and freeze or cook right away or what have you, but I love heart meat. So a heart is a muscle. It's not a filter like a liver or a kidney. So that goes there. Um, and, and that's like pretty much what I take from the internal organs. So the rest you got to figure out how to get rid of, compost or, or throw away. Um, that's how I deal with it. Heads, I'm not big on cutting up heads and... Getting everything out of now with hogs. If they're a big pig, I will take the jowls and what have you. But that's just another thing that has to be either be thrown away or disposed of in some way. Um, it's not a good idea 
likely, even if you have a big homestead, to be leaving things like that out for scavengers because you start attracting things like coyotes and what have you uh, and whatnot. So in the end, you have to figure out how you're going to get rid of this stuff. If I was slaughtering pigs and, and cattle, uh, I would have to think at a different level than I do right now. It's one of the reasons I like smaller animals. It's a, it's a little bit easier to deal with. I know purists would say you should be using every speck. And I, I look at it this way. I don't use 100% of every animal that I slaughter. I don't. I'll admit it. But I use 90%. And I use 90% 100% of the time. Uh, that's that's how I try to, to, to do things. And that's the best that I can do with the time that I have available, where I live, the situation that I have. But I, I really want to learn more about things like processing hogs and things like that because I believe that uh, that's something that's really you can utilize a higher level. And you know when I when I do my feral hogs, I never shave and scald and shave a hog. I, I don't. I skin them. But I know pork with the skin on is better. I, I get that. I don't think it's worth it with feral hogs. I don't see myself personally raising hogs, but I do want. I'm actually prop myself and and Kevin from Perma Ethos are probably going to go to a class with uh, the Farmstead Meatsmith and uh, gain that skill of charcuterie and, and actually teach a class uh, at some point in the future for Perma Ethos to, to other people. I want to learn that skill. I think it's very valuable, and it makes you able to use more. And I have no problem with someone says, well, I always save the intestines to make sauce, uh, sausage casings out of them. Great. Awesome. Do it for me. I'll even pay you. Whatever I buy casings for, I'll pay you the same to do it with mine. But I just don't want to do that part of the job. We all, Again, we all have our limits. Uh, that's the best I can do for you on that one. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up for the day. Here's an interesting question from uh, Balkum. Uh, do you have thoughts about investing in colored diamonds? You recommend 5% to 10% of a person's net wealth uh, be in gold and silver, but I've never heard you discuss the pros and cons of including colored diamonds as part of someone's investment preps. Historically, they've been a similar store of value, but valuation is much more difficult. They are less liquid and in larger denominations than gold coins. Then again, colored diamonds allow someone to store, transport an enormous amount of uh, universally valued wealth in a very small package with no oversight. Details. I recently received marketing materials and thereafter a phone call from what appears to be a reputable 15-year-old Canadian company offering colored diamond investments. And he goes on from there. Yeah. I don't consider gems of any kind investments the way that I do gold and silver. I think they are a commodity. I think their value is extremely subjective, extremely volatile. And I believe that no matter what, the worse an economy is, the less money you will get for them. That is not the same as silver and gold. Sometimes an economy is down and silver and gold are down, but sometimes when an economy is down, silver and gold are up. Gems do not go up when the economy goes down ever because they're a luxury. They're a luxury. Silver and gold are liquid, period. Gems are not liquid. There's usually some place you can sell them, and the price you get from A, B, and C vendors will probably vary widely. That is not how gold and silver work. People say, I want to sell my silver, but I'm afraid that if I go to the wrong store, they'll rip me off. For what? 20 cents an ounce? Pick the phone up right now if you doubt me. Call 10 places that buy and sell silver and gold. And say, right now, I have make something up. 
I don't know, 20 ounces of American Silver Eagles. I'm looking to sell them. What are you currently paying for them right now? And they might say something like, well, do you have 1986 is the first year ever made in Mint Station? No, there's just regular random date uh, American Silver Eagles. I got 20 of them. They're all three or four years old. They're all just basically the way they come. And, and they'll give you a price. They'll say right there, right now, today, on that, pro we're paying XYZ. Call 10 companies and see if they're more than 2% apart from each other. And call and say, what are you selling those for? And if sometimes they'll usually tell you, and they'll probably be all very close to the same price they're selling them for. Because it is a universally accepted commodity. It is not a subjective commodity, which is what a gem is. Now there's color, cut, clarity, etc. in the gem world. And uh, people that are really good uh, at, at appraising gems will often be able to take and appraise You get 10 gems and have a really astute guy appraise them, have another astute guy appraise them, and they're all really, really close to each other. Because there is a kind of a, a market value for most gems, and there is a criteria for grading them. But you have to know how to do that. And the guy's there with a little loop, and he's doing all this other stuff. Well, the only thing you have to know about a silver eagle or a, a, a tenth of an ounce of gold to know what it's worth is know that it's silver or gold. That is all. That is all. And you will not walk into a place that, that, that sells silver and gold and ask to sell your silver or gold and have them go, get out of here. We're not buying any today. It's liquid. So that's an investment. And it's not uh, just an investment. It's a, it, it is a immediately convertible store of value. Universally con convertible store of value. Now, am I saying that if you're a really rich guy with a bunch of money and you want some risk play, that there'd be no way in hell I would ever recommend that you invest in gems? No, I, I think you should know more than what you learned from in a marketing brochure of a 15-year-old reputable Canadian company, though. I think investing in gems is like investing in stocks. If you have to ask, you're probably not prepared Right? They're going to say, I'm wondering if XYZ company is a good investment right now. Well, you're probably not qualified to be trading stocks. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying I want to stop you from doing it. I'm saying, in the end, you're probably going to lose a lot of money. Because you don't know what you're doing. Because you don't know how to perform a technical analysis on that stock. And you're betting the person you're asking the question does. And even if he's very good at what he does. And he says, this is on my buy list. And this guy makes money doing what he does, and he makes money all the time. And he's very, very astute, switched-on financial person. And you'd say, are you buying company XYZ right now? And he might say, I just put in a trade for it today. I bought $100,000 worth of it. That's how sure I am of my investment. You go, okay, well, now I know. I'm going to go buy that. And this is what happens. You buy that. He's holding 30 investments. He has criteria where he knows this isn't working. I am going to say that I've changed my mind and XYZ shall be sold today and then I shall short it on the back end and use the money from the sale to pick up an equivalent amount of ABC Corporation. But you only asked him what he was doing last week and he's changed his mind now and now you're screwed. Because you're holding it, he's done dumped it, and you come back to him and go, but you said to buy it. And he goes, well, see, that was when you asked. And of course I bought it. I realized I was going to take a 2% loss. I went over here, and I got a 19% gain. 
Therefore, over this period of time, I have come out with a 17% gain. Why didn't you do what I did, dummy? Because I didn't know that. That's why you shouldn't be trading stocks based on what somebody says. Because it's only what they say now. So gems, same thing. Same thing. Now, most, if they're real, <laughs> reputable, and they have the color, the cut, the clarity, everything they're supposed to have, will hold value and will be worth something if you want to say you can find somebody to buy it. It's one of those things that's like a gun. You can sell a gun, you can find somebody to buy a gun, and a gun that's a good quality gun is never worth nothing. Okay? It's always worth something to someone somewhere. But if the economy is in a real boom state where people are buying lots of shit just because they want it, you get more for it than if it's in a lackadaisical state or a down state. Right? And you can't just go look. Because people will say, well, I mean, if you want to understand this, watch the show Pawn Stars. It's non-reality TV. There's a bunch of fake crap in it. It's all set up. I understand that. But the mentality and psychology explained in it is spot on. So uh, the guy brings something in. He goes, well, what are you looking for for it? And the guy says, uh, I think it's like a thousand dollars. Okay? Uh, and the, the, let's say the, the pawn guy doesn't know if it's really worth that or not. He says, well, where are you getting that from? Oh, I've seen them going online for more than that. Uh, you know, I got a buddy. Let's bring a buddy in here. Expert comes in and looks at it. Dog and pony show. And the expert says, you know what? This is worth right about a thousand bucks. He's, he's dead on. And the guy's all happy and he's nodding and all. Hey, thanks for your time. Guy walks out and what is, what is it? the pawn guy then turns to the guy and says, well, how much do you want to sell for? And the guy goes, well, your expert just said it's worth a thousand dollars. And the pawn guy goes, uh, no, 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 no. It's worth a thousand dollars on a good day to the right person that wants to buy it, that's in the mood to buy it from me. That's what I hope to sell it for. I may have to sell it for significantly less, so I'm thinking like 400 bucks. That's your gems. Whatever you pay, whatever you pay for a gem, if you take it the next day to sell it, unless somebody blows up the, 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 the tanzanite mines and the tanzanite is pinched off for the next six years, you will sell it at a significant loss. Not a 2%, 3%, 5% premium against the spot price of silver and gold. No, 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 no. Like the loss you get on a car when you drive it off a lot, that kind of loss. So if you buy a gem that's a $1,000 gem, for you to get your money back, it probably has to go to the point where it's being sold out to people like you for like $1,300. It has to go up like 30% before you break even. That is not an investment. That is what? Dun, dun, dun. Gambling. Investing in gems is gambling. It's a relatively, compared to many other forms, safe form of gambling. It's a lot less likely to get wiped out on you. It's not like, you know, going in and playing the ponies for a 514 boxed in trifecta and betting a grand on it, right? You have a very low odd that you're going to pick. It's going to cut those, those are your, your ponies are going to come in that way and you're going to win. And when you lose, you lose it all. Okay. But it's like going out, buying something that you can sell for $700 for a thousand dollars and hoping it becomes worth $1,300 so you can break in, break even, and then hoping it goes up more so that you can sell it. You know how you make money in gems? You buy cheap and sell medium. 
I can tell you, you can make money selling jewelry. You can make money selling gems. It is possible. Um, there's a lot. It's a big industry. And there's retail jewelry outlets and all that. But I'll give you an example of somebody. And I wish I, this is one of these opportunities that you're so close to being part of, but you're just not. So when I was in the Army, we had this, uh, this, this guy that was in my unit. He was a sergeant. And he drove a really nice red IROC Z Camaro. T-tops, smoked windows and all. And he just seemed like he was doing pretty well for himself for a sergeant. But hey, you know what? You can get a car. You don't have any of the bills, whatever. But he always seemed like he was pretty well to do. So one day I'm talking to him. Unfortunately, this is like three weeks before I'm getting out. And I, I say, you know, you seem to do pretty well for yourself. He goes, yeah, I do all right. He goes, right now the reenlistment guy is uh, is uh, trying to get me to reenlist. And I'm not reenlisted, but I'm staying here in Panama. I'm working out how to do that when I get out. And I said, why? He goes, I have a business. I said, well, what do you do? He goes, you know the free zone? Yeah, and that's the, on, the, on the other side of the isthmus from us, the, the Atlantic side. It's a place where stuff comes in duty-free and you can buy it duty-free. He goes, well, my family has a history in the jewelry business. I have a brother that has some contacts. So what I do is I know exactly what they're looking for. I go over there and I buy the stuff that they already basically already have sold in advance. You know, he wants this much of that, this much of this, and whatever. And then I package it up, and it's completely legal. I'm able to mail it to him, and everything's fine. Like, I could call the government and tell him there's nothing underhanded at all about what I'm doing. This is how this business gets done, and I know what I'm doing. And he's even like, you know, there's a lot of room here. There's a lot of opportunity. I could show you how to do it. And I'm like, well, and first of all, I'm thinking, am I being recruited to Amway with Jules at the time? It didn't make sense to me yet. I was pretty young. And I'm also thinking, three weeks, I'm getting the hell out of here. I never want to be back to this place again. I'm done, right? Um, so then looking back now, I can look at the way that was going and go, this guy was this guy was doing it. But he was flipping it. He was flipping it. And he knew what he could sell it for before he bought it. There's guys making money with cattle this way. We just talked to an old guy that ran a cattle ranch at the farm we're consulting for for 50 years. That was how he did cattle. If a cow wasn't going to make money, goes to the sale barn, gone. When he would go to the sale barn, he would look for cows that were underweight, but there wasn't really much, nothing wrong with them. Get them, and in 30 to 45 days, they're back there with a weight gain and they're sold. They're flipped. And that way, your risk of the market crashing is mitigated. If you're going to make money trading stocks, trading gems, reselling X, etc., and it's a volatile market, you either have to be really sharp with the long-term cycle or really quick and know, I'm going to put it in my hand today at a cost of a 1000 It's going to go out the door tomorrow at a sale price of, of, I don't care if it's a $50 profit. If I hold it for one day, I make 50 bucks off it. If I already have it sold before I buy it, now I can make Now it's, it's a money-making opportunity. And that's where I think gems fit in. There's a money-making opportunity. And frankly, here's why I believe that's the case. Because I think people are stupid. Okay? I And, and I've bought my fair share of jewelry. I am a good husband. I know women like this shit. I get it. But in general, we're morons. There are so many diamonds that they shouldn't be worth jack diddly crap. But that the Beers family owns almost every major diamond mining operation... 
and controls the release into the market. There's a place, 2020 did a special in the 80s. There's a, like this hill at this mine of tailings. And you can take a bucket with a string, whip it over the side and drag it up through all these tailings or little pieces of gravel and stuff. And there's enough diamonds in there that if they, and, and they're high enough quality that if they're, they're taken out and cut and everything to be worth a thousand dollars or more, this is in the eighties in one little, I'm talking like a lunch pail size bucket. But people are out buying these things for thousands and thousands of dollars. Think about this. This is what you're buying when you buy a diamond. You're buying a rock that someone pulled out of the ground, made shape a certain way and polished it. It doesn't do anything. Can't eat it. And everybody that looks at it will value it differently. You can't even do basically an energy audit analysis against it and say, well, human labor is represented by X factor in this item. You can actually do that with silver and gold. It's a very constant formulaic thing. That's why, so you go back to silver. You do hear me say things like, put some money in a silver and gold. And then you hear me say, if you want some numismatic coins, some things that are high grade, collector edition, old coins that are in perfect state, graded, you want some of that, fine. If, if, if you, first of all, I don't think you need any, but if you want that of your investment in silver and gold, of 5 to 10% of your net worth, take the numismatics at 5 to 10% of the total metals worth. It's a nice thing. It's cool. It's fun. You like it. I get it. Some people like to collect, I don't know, uh, Ziggy dolls or some shit, or troll dolls. I don't care. Whatever makes you happy. That's fine. But don't call it an investment. Call it a hobby that you're enthusiastic about, that if you ever decide you're not anymore, you might get more money you put in and you might not. Okay? That's how you got to look at it. all of this stuff. When you're planning your future, your retirement, what you're going to be able to, you know, use to buy a, a house or a farm or start a business, you don't do it with things with subjective value. You do it methodically, and you got to know what you're doing. If you have to ask if investing in something is a good investment, it's probably not a good investment for you. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there.
Yeah.